I'd like to show you why knowing your why is the start of your journey. Without a strong why, it can be so difficult to reach your maximum potential. My name is Dr. Jason Ballara, and every week I meet with real estate investors and mindset specialists that are taking action in order to build a life according to their own terms. We will break down what drives successful people and allows them to achieve at such a high level. If you are a professional wanting to break through, or simply someone that wants to hear an inspiring story, the Know Your Why podcast is made for you. Hi everyone, I'm Jason Ballara and this is the Know Your Why podcast. Today I'm here with Mark Updegraff. Mark is a City of Rochester advocate, employer, entrepreneur, and business owner. He's passionate about striving to provide safe, clean, affordable, sustainable, adaptable space for the community at large while garnering the best and brightest minds in an effort to stimulate the economy through creativity. So Mark has a, we were talking before we started recording, Mark has a very cool uh, bio here, which I'm going to let you tell us about it, Mark. But first, I just want to say thank you for um, coming on the show today, taking out the time to come and share your story. I'm, I'm super excited to dive into this. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's awesome. been great getting to know you on LinkedIn a little bit. I know. It's been, we were fortunate enough to meet through this uh, LinkedIn challenge. So thank you, Yona Weiss, for putting that together. But yeah, it's um, it's been a really cool experience. Well, let's let's just start, Mark. Let's let's get your background. I, you know, I know um, I was already sort of getting all fired up because you're a photographer as well. But but why don't you just give us your background? Tell us about yourself, and then we'll we'll dive in from there. Yeah, I came up to Rochester, New York. I was originally from central Pennsylvania, smaller town, about 40,000 people. I came to Rochester to go to RIT, Rochester Institute of Technology, where I found a nice degree program, which was a bachelor's of science, but it also let me get my creativity out in that, you know, it was a photographic program and we did a lot of technical photography, but we also took nature photography and studio photography. Uh, so it was just a really great program for somebody like myself that excelled in math and science, uh, but really didn't want to turn my back on my creative side either. So I went through that program. I got my bachelor's of science. I went and worked into industry and realized that the uh, wages for a BS degree really weren't what I was hoping they would be. So I went back and uh, got some advanced degree in imaging also, you know, kind of following on the, the footsteps of my previous degree and, um, went back and attacked the job force again in, in the imaging field. And I just, I realized that being in corporate as a scientist or a technician, it was really, you were going to hit a plateau on pay in my particular case. You know, I talked to some very experienced scientists and, uh, they said, don't ever expect to make more than a hundred thousand dollars. You know, they, they'd been there their entire careers. They're coming in on their retirement age. And that was pretty depressing because I was hired in at 72,000. And for them to tell me that they had been there for decades and they were only making a little bit more money than I was, was pretty depressing. Uh, so I did have a lot of meetings with like my supervisor and he said, well, really, you know, I can coach you onto the management side, because if you want to make more than a hundred thousand dollars, you're going to have to have it more of a management role. And uh, in the process of doing that, I realized how much fluff there was on the management side uh, where these guys were really just, it was kind of like political and who you knew and the contacts that you had outside of the organization and just kind of like hobnobbing your way to get more money is what it felt like. It didn't really feel like it was fair, uh, especially seeing that the scientists were the ones that were driving the innovation and they were really kind of uh, looked down upon, in my opinion, 
I remember the story uh, from Kodak, you know, Kodak obviously had the first digital camera. They had the bear patent, which was like the most valuable patent of all times. And they wouldn't listen to their scientists, right? Their scientists said, Hey, we need to really focus on digital. And they said, no, you know, we own the film industry. We're going to con continue to make film because these emerging markets are going to buy our film. Well, the emerging markets didn't buy the film. They skipped straight and went right to digital and Kodak lost their foothold and they tumbled. Uh, so I kind of felt like the same thing was happening at the industry that I was working in, in that the scientists that I was with, you know, we had a lot of really good ideas, you know, coming fresh out of school, I was able to apply some of that, that knowledge and, you know, they were on board and they said, this is what we need the managers to do. These are what we want to push forward on. You know, we're doing uh, metrics on video in real time, which typically is very data sensitive because there's so much data in the video stream. We were able to create a metric that could in take the video and give you like a zero to one number on image degradation anywhere in the chain. And they just didn't want to hear anything about it. And I'm like, this, this just feels like Kodak all over again. And uh, when they lost a legacy contract with the department of defense, they laid off about 2000 people in Rochester. I was one of the first in. So first out or last in first out, whatever that saying is I got laid off with, with the 2000 people, uh, all who had similar degrees, you know, imaging science type people, and so my marketplace was completely flooded with people looking for work in the industry. And at that point, I really didn't have an option of staying in my field and staying in Rochester. The problem was I had purchased about a dozen rental properties up until that point. And I was kind of hitched to Rochester because I was the person managing them. I was the person that was still on the ground uh, doing some of the construction type stuff, running a small construction crew. And my wife really liked her career and she didn't want to up earth and move uh, plus the cost of living wherever we went would have been significantly higher than it is in Rochester. Rochester is a very economically friendly place to live and, um, you know, the traffic's not bad. So there was a lot of good things that we liked about Rochester. We just, we didn't want to leave. Uh, so we stuck here and I pivoted to real estate full time. It was a leap of faith because my family's not in real estate and I really didn't know anybody that was in real estate and I didn't have a very good sphere of people that I even knew in Rochester. So I made the leap of faith and luckily it worked out and that's kind of how I got here and how I got into real estate. Yeah. It was very cool. I mean, it, really unique background, I think, uh, within, you know, sort of film and, and videography, but, but probably what's not unique is that sort of corporate structure heading towards layoffs when, you know, something, uh, an industry doesn't, doesn't follow with the times. I think that happens to a lot of people. And unfortunately, and it's your point about sort of management being more of a bureaucracy than anything. I think that that, that does happen in a lot of corporate companies where it's people move up in management, not because they know more about the business, but just because they've been there longer. Um, so it's always, it's it, sometimes I, I think it's frustrating structure, but you you said you know you, so you got laid off and you you took that leap of faith to go real estate full time. However, you said you had you already had twelve rentals at that point. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yep. In all all within Rochester. Yeah. So when I planted my first flag, uh, that was a leap of faith. You know, everybody around me it was 08 and you know the sentiment was like don't touch real estate. Right. Uh, but I could see that if I was strategic about what I was doing, you know, I wasn't just willy nilly buying something random. I did speculate and purchase in an area that I believed was going to go up in value because it had some, some good grassroots efforts in that area, you know, some local restaurateurs and some uh, local homeowners 
and other business owners that had you know planted their flags. And even though the rest of the neighborhood was pretty crummy and crime ridden, and there was drug traffic, um, I could tell that it was like early early seeds of revitalization. Uh, so I went ahead and moved forward with my purchase. It was just a small single family house. I uh, renovated it myself and I got it leased up very easily. And um, once I did that and I realized that I was getting really good passive income, you know, with relatively little work after the hard heavy lifting was done, as far as the finding it, acquiring it and getting it ready for rent, I was a little bored, right? So I was still working, uh, but I didn't have any kids yet. And I really wanted to work on building my passive income stream. Uh, so I used that as a benchmark and I wanted to make sure that the next investment that I made would benefit my first investment. So I was really strategic about trying to keep my investments as close together as possible. And so over you know the last 15 years, um, this, the, the first house I bought was on Gregory Street. I currently have probably 10 units or so on Gregory Street, maybe maybe a couple more. Um, so that was one street that I strategically targeted. And anytime I could find an opportunity on that street, I knew that it was going to help lift the values of the other properties that I already had on that street. Uh, but overall, my complete portfolio, most of my units are going to be concentrated within you know, probably a quarter to a half a mile of each other. Um, and then if I go to a new market that's outside of that, I do the same thing all over again. So I might, you know, plant a new flag in a, in a new neighborhood, but then the next flags that I plant are going to be as close to that flag as possible. So I can have that lifting effect uh, based on my efforts, but I, I tend to over-improve, have a quality product that I can not have to worry. I'm going to get all these uh, incidental wear and tear type bills or CapEx bills cropping up. So I, I try to get them in service and have them set it and forget it kind of mentality where I know that the reserve that I carved out in my pro forma is going to be enough to replace those items when I need them, but it's, I'm not looking down the barrel of a new roof or I'm not looking down the barrel of a new furnace necessarily. Uh, after I've placed it in service, I've taken care of those items on the front end. Yeah. And I, I just want people to sort of anyone listening, rewind and play that little clip again, because what the the point about sort of creating your own you're basically creating your own comps you're you're raising the value of your own properties by staying within such a you know finite area and keeping everything close together it's it's just a, a fantastic strategy and and something that i think you know people don't necessarily do enough of where they just get kind of i want to get involved in a deal wherever i can and it's like if you can, if you can be the driver of value within your own, both on both within the the property itself, right? So you know, lots of people are are renovating, lots of people are doing that sort of value add strategy, but but to also essentially be value adding to the neighborhood within that within you are investing is just a, a phenomenal point. Um, Mark, I wanna, I kind of want to talk numbers a little bit on those first couple of deals in large part because um, it was 2008 and I also know the cost of, of Rochester. I'm originally from um, Massachusetts. So I know <laughs> I have friends that live in Rochester. I'm actually curious to know if you know them, but um, how it, it used to be that people would talk a lot about the 2% rule and then the 2% rule became the 1% rule. And now it's like a lot of times hard to even get that 1%. So can you talk us through a little bit on the numbers of your first deal or your first couple of deals kind of in that area? 
Yeah. So Rochester is definitely a market of abundance and it's changed. Like the nation has changed over time. Um, so my first deal was 55,000 out of pocket or 55,000 acquisition, 7,000 out of pocket to get the deal closed. I did a, a 90, 10 loan with bank of America. They also let me do seller's concessions of 6%, which in hindsight, looking back now as a broker, I'm like, I don't even know if I was supposed to be able to get that. Uh, but I did. And in, uh, in 2008, I, after 2008, the crash, you were able to get that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Bank of America. That's, that's and I mean, the loans were very difficult to close with Bank of America. I used them for probably my first six or seven purchases. And it was just uh, such a time consuming, you know, everybody's frustrated because the deals took forever to close kind of situation, but they had the best terms. So that's why I went with them. Um, and yeah, the the numbers just looked really good. That particular rental was set at 925 was the amount that I rented it the first year. Uh, it renewed for a second term. They left. I got a new tenant in and I raised it to 1125. And it's always been, you know, at least at that rental rate since I've had it. Uh, so if you do the math, um, it's probably about eight to 10% cash on cash. And uh, with the leverage at that interest rate, I was probably looking at like 25% ROI with the, uh, the 9010 loan from Bank of America. So it leveraged up nicely. Um, and now, Fast forward to today, you're definitely not getting that deal. Um, I'm lucky that I'm a broker and I'm a professional and I've been networking like crazy for the last 15 years. So I do source deals that other people probably will never see. Um, you know, a lot of stuff might come from the steps. It might come from a city tax auction, a county tax auction. It might just be somebody that calls me that says, hey, you know, I know that you are into this and I need cash and I need to sell now. Can you help me? Uh, so one of the the quick tips that I'll give your listeners is that like when you do buy a property, go around and knock on all your immediate neighbors' doors and give them your business card and just let them know what your vision is and what your values are and what you're planning on doing and uh, how you'd like to improve the community. Um, not only uh, will they contact you later if they're going to sell or if they know somebody that's going to sell. Typically, there's one mayor of the street or one mayor of the neighborhood. That's the only person that you need to find. And uh, once you find that person on your street, they're going to bring you all the intel that you need as far as you know somebody that might be in distress that's looking to sell. Um, and then the other thing it's going to do is it's going to inspire them to fix up their houses because you're going to meet them. You're going to shake their hands. You're going to tell them about your vision. And then when they see you actually doing it, you'll notice that they start doing it too. So they'll be out, you know, maybe painting their deck or just trying to make their house look a little bit nicer. So it really does help to lift the neighborhood by actually sharing your vision with your neighbors. Uh, so anytime I purchase a house, the first thing that I do, you know, after I do my final walkthrough and I sign at the closing table is I knock on at least, I would tell you five of my immediate neighbors, if not 10 and pass out my business card and, and get to know them a little bit. I think that's a, it's probably a, very missed uh, opportunity and a missed strategy that that a lot of people don't, you know, as as investors, it's, I bought this house, I'm going to come in and do my thing and and don't necessarily think about that. But again, if, if you're trying to establish a presence in a, in a specific neighborhood on a specific street, whatever the case may be, this is going to, I mean, I mean, these are all huge tips that people should use to kind of, because because you're right, there's going to be someone in the neighborhood that kind of knows everybody and what what everybody's doing, whether everybody else wants them to or not. They're going to know those things, and it's finding that person will keep you really in the know as to what's going on. And and 
and may very well protect your property to some extent th that you have purchased. So there's yeah. there's just so much benefit and and value to the community doing that, but but also to yourself in your future, you know, kind of investment goals. Yeah. I think most people worry that the they're going to call them and say, hey, trim your hedges or hey, your tenant's being too noisy. You know, you'll get, when they call you, it'll be important. Like if they're telling you that your hedges need trimmed, your hedges probably really do need trimmed. Right. And uh, they're going to be the ones that are giving you a heads up on maybe a problem tenant that you didn't realize slipped past your screening ahead of time where you have time to go over there and nip it in the bud, start sending violation letters and start having serious conversations with the tenant before they do have the opportunity to do some serious damage. Uh, so I would say the thing that's helped me most in my investing is really having that that open communication with my neighbors. I think they definitely have the potential to make or break your investment, especially when it comes to dealing with like city code enforcements and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. You don't want the neighbors to have any kind of disdain for you in what you're doing and what you represent. So I think that initial, um, you know, vision sharing is really, really important. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I love it. I think it's a, it's a fantastic idea. What's your, so right now, what's your portfolio look like? So we are managing 450 doors right around there. Uh, my personal portfolio uh, is probably right around 80 doors or so. I, I don't really track it or keep, keep count of it. I, you know, I know a lot of people do, but I just kind of like to do my thing and uh, keep those activities as a separate passive endeavor that the money that comes in, I reinvest back into that business or those businesses. I keep everything completely compartmentalized from um, a business standpoint. So, you know, I might say my risk tolerance is maybe, uh, I don't know, $100,000, $200,000 in equity. So once I have an LLC that has that much equity in it, you know, it might have five properties, it might have 10 properties, whatever the case may be, I spin off and make a new entity. And then I kind of monitor the entities on a yearly basis when I do my taxes, but I don't really fuss about them other than that. Okay. So you're putting, that's a, I, that's very interesting to me. I want to just back up a little bit. So you're, you're putting multiple properties within an entity. And then when you have a certain level of equity within those collective properties, then you break that off into separate entities at that point. Yeah. So, you know, I'll, I'll usually structure it. So if I'm doing maybe a refinance or something else, because my equity positions have changed after I've paid down some principal, I don't want to have too much exposure for a lawsuit. You know, if somebody trips and falls at one property, I don't want it to suck a bunch of equity out of a lot of other properties. So every, you know, maybe three to seven years, I'll look at what loans are coming to maturity and I might restructure what properties are in which um, based on how much they've gone up in value, you know, so if I've got some that have been in an area that have experienced more appreciation, they might be next up for a refinance. Um, so I'll reposition them into a new LLC that I'll get financing on, but I want to have a risk tolerance threshold where I don't want to put too much equity into one LLC where then I'm risking, you know, losing that equity if something happens within that grouping of properties. So I, I set that pretty low. I'm risk adverse. So I don't like to have a ton of equity sitting in an LLC where it might get attacked by uh, some somebody that's, you know, ambulance chaser or something. That's uh that's brilliant. I mean, I it's it's really cool. The the that's definitely the the scientist side of you, uh, I think <laughs> putting all this together. Do, how do you so you're also managing, you're managing for other people then if you're managing 400 plus units on top of your own. 
Um, all also in Rochester. Yeah, pretty much across Monroe County. We go outside of Monroe County a little bit, but uh, most of what we do is going to be right here. The majority in the city of Rochester, but we have a lot of really nice suburbs. Um, so we do have some investors that like to invest passively in the suburbs. It tends to be a less uh, cash flow play, more uh, appreciation play. And some investors just, they want the cash flow. So they're definitely going to end up in the city. Uh, but we have a lot of people that don't like the drama that comes with some city rentals like evictions and higher damages and you know sometimes higher vacancy rates. So it's going to depend on the investor, but I would tell you the majority of people are, are tending towards the city investments. Makes sense. What um, what do you see for returns in Rochester at this point? I know I, if you're saying, I guess maybe stick with the city because I'm I'm intrigued mm -hmm. by you know, sort of that cash flow metric. Yeah, I always shoot for like the same type of uh, return on investment. You know, with the higher interest rates today, it's getting a lot harder. Um, so I would tell you that from a gross rent multiplier standpoint, we can still find stuff that trades as low as like a three or a four gross rent multiplier which is a heavy cash flow play. But the problem is going to be they tend to be super deferred properties and they tend to be in the worst neighborhoods. And so the uh, back of the envelope pro forma breaks down. You look at a Schedule E for a property like that. And those are investors that come into the market, think they know better than the professionals. They buy a bunch of garbage. And then three to five years, they throw their hands up, they lost a bunch of money and they dump them for a loss. Um, and then the other side of the scale, you know, we'll see a 12 gross rent multiplier, which really there's no cash flow left. If you're not an extremely wealthy person that's just parking cash to take advantage of some uh, the tax benefits, it really doesn't make sense from a cash flow perspective. So I'm always targeting that like uh, six to seven gross rent multiplier. I find I can get a good blue collar neighborhood and I can still get cash flow. You know, typically if you're looking at a price per foot, acquisition to still cash flow and to do that I'm typically around 80 to maybe 120 on the absolute upper end acquisition price I'd like to see it closer to 80 you know it'll depend on if there's any value add component but we'll say if I'm all in for like 100 a foot including any make rent ready that's a pretty sweet spot where I'm still going to get a decent cash flow that's going to quantify to about $100 a month in true cash flow after you've budgeted for like a 35% contingency for your vacancy, your cap extra your repair, your management, and then actually factored out the operational costs. So it's like the 50% rule, but just a little bit more refined. You're still making a hundred bucks a month. So it's not get rich quick. It's get rich really, really slow. Back in 08, you could have expected that would have been 200, maybe even 300 if you got a, a real juicy deal. Um, so it, it's gone down by you know half at least um, and the market that you're buying has shifted a little bit too, right? So the markets are always changing. Um, I would say you get a little bit less, it's a little, you, ha you have to hunt a little bit harder to get that extra value. I talk about the little old lady house. So when I'm in the field, I'm trying to get that extra value by finding the house that's got the family that's lived in it for a long time. And they've done a lot of the CapEx, but some things are probably outdated. You know, the kitchen and the bathroom are outdated. And there's some shag carpeting over top of the hardwood floors. Uh, that trades for the same price as the house next door that's been a rental for 50 years. All the moldings are all busted up. Uh, there's cracks in the plaster from people slamming furniture in, in and out. And uh, you can just tell there's way more wear and tear. You know, the, we've got one family that lived in it for 50 years and raised three kids versus, you know, what, 20 families that raised three kids and 
um, they trade for the same price on the open market. So I'm, I'm diving in and I'm trying to get my extra value when I'm in the field and sourcing deals that have those, those type of, uh, upside opportunities. So you're going, you no, know, if you're a broker, probably, as you said, that, you know, people are reaching out to you. So it's probably easier to find those off market deals than it might be, you know, kind of the, I guess, traditional or, or an investor that's coming in from outside the market anyway. I think what? it's uh, it's up to the person, right? It's whatever you put into something, you're going to get it back out. It's not because I'm a broker. It's because I'm a people person. Yeah. And uh, when I talk to people, I'm not shy and I tell them what I do and what I'm looking for. And then they help me later. So I don't think it's because I'm a broker. I think it's because I'm outgoing and I'm willing to have conversations with people. Um, what I've noticed, like just training people is a lot of people are just very short with other people. And so they'll get into a conversation and you can tell just looking at their face, they're looking for the exit. They're looking to get out. And, you know, if I'm the person that you're talking to and I'm getting that kind of body language from you, I don't really care about you and I don't want to do business with you. And I don't want to ever think about you again. And so, you know, what I try to coach them on, which is tough is like, this is a relationship game. Like, I don't care if you don't like the person you think it's the most annoying person on the planet. You have to have that nice conversation and let them talk to you and listen to them and be respectful of their time. And um, you can't cut them off and you can't be like, Hey, I got, I got to go. You know, you just, you have to let it naturally come to its conclusion. And sometimes I'll spend a lot of time with people because they might not have that, um, you know, that that same sense of, okay, I'm taking a lot of this person's time. I should stop and let them go. They just keep going. And, you know, my, my whole approach has always been, I'm just going to let them go as long as they want to go. You know, if it gets to a ridiculous amount of time then I can always say, Hey, you know, I've got another engagement that I have to go to and, and I'm not being rude because I did give them a significant amount of time, but I've never like put that body language on my face to disrespect them. Yeah. That's a great point. I mean, it, it is, it is very much a relationship business is very much being uh, able to communicate with people effectively and everything. So uh, really, really makes sense. You're so you're, how, how did you get, how did it work out that you were also managing for other people? Like what, what was the progression? I, you know, I know you told us about how you kind of started taking on properties yourself. Um, but at what point did you start adding in, you know, sort of managing for other people? Sure. So I had built my portfolio up to probably 25 units and it was getting to the point where I couldn't focus on, um, you know, sales at the same time. I had gotten licensed as a salesperson when I lost that, that W2 job and I had no experience in sales and I didn't know if I'd be any good at it. And it turns out that because I wasn't trying to sell, I was trying to educate that a lot of people just naturally gravitated towards my services. And so I really saw the potential to be able to make some good earnings and then put that money back to work passively. Uh, so I started to build a brokerage on the sales side. And a lot of the people that came to me on the sales, they wanted investment properties. They wanted to do what I was doing. And uh, partly because I only had so much money and I had no problem finding equitable deals. And I wanted to make sure that if I found something that at least somebody that I knew could take advantage of it. Uh, so I did have quite a number of people that came through as early investors that were people that might not have had any experience as investors starting out. And I kind of held their hands, helped them source the deal. And then as soon as they were done, they're like, I need you to manage it. Uh, so we started the management company formally um, 10 years ago as an LLC. You know, I had previously managed my own properties before that, uh, but I got licensed uh, a second brokerage license in order to, to do the management piece and manage for other people 
officially. Uh, so we launched that just to make sure that all the hard work that I did up front to help them get into that investment property wasn't going to get ruined by some manager that didn't know what they were doing or didn't really care. Uh, so we've built that over the last 10 years uh, to really cater towards owners. And I treat myself like an owner, right? So all my properties are compartmentalized in these LLCs. I put them through exactly like all the other owners. So if there's any pain in the system, I'm an owner too. I can feel that pain and then I can work with my staff to work it out and make sure that we have better processes and procedures uh, to really build the property management company in the right direction. Yeah, it's fantastic. How, what's your vision? What What do you look for, you know, kind of going forward with this in, in terms of growth, in terms of, you know, kind of where do you see it all being in, in another five or 10 years? Yeah, I think one of my skill sets, uh, well, my two favorite skill sets that I have are, you know, being able to talk to people, um, explain to them the benefits about real estate, uh, source deals, get them closed, and then also operate the deal as far as from a management, asset management, and from a property management standpoint. So I think really my aha moment after I've been, you know, getting into raise masters and meeting a lot of people that do capital raising and that do operating, not necessarily property management, but asset management and operating a syndication is that um, I'm kind of naturally suited for that role. And so I'm just really looking to network with a lot of people, listen to what they've done, learn, learn from them, and then take my skill set and apply it to that methodology versus, you know, being a broker that just helps people here and there find a property and then we manage it. I'd like to scale it up where uh, I can help more people. And uh, hopefully we can, once we get into economies of scale, the numbers will look even better. So that's, that's my goal. You know, I'm, I'm a buy and hold guy. So I always want to have part of that, a piece of equity. Um, I'll invest along with any deal that I find because anything that I underwrite, I'm going to want it to make a lot of sense and I'm going to want to have a piece of it. So I plan on being uh, LP and G, uh, GP as well. Awesome. Awesome. Um, that's really cool. I, I really, I just kind of love what you've built there, that the strategy and everything behind it makes so much sense. And um, now taking your skill set onto, you know, into, into multifamily is, is I think it's going to translate very, very well. Let me, let me switch gears, Mark. I want to get to the part where I get to ask you the questions I ask every guest. Um, and the first one, of course, is being, uh, or is because of the name of the show being Know Your Why. And so I know, <laughs> I know you commented on this on LinkedIn, but uh, for, for the listeners, um, tell, tell us what your why is, what your, uh, what's driving you towards this, this bigger and bigger success. I would like to pass on the legacy that my parents gave me to my children. You know, they made a lot of sacrifices for us uh, to help us get to where we are. You know, I definitely wouldn't be here if it wasn't for my parents and, and for what they did for my sisters and I. And I'd like to just make sure that I can take that legacy and I can translate it down to my kids and uh, make sure that they have all the tools that they need to to really succeed in life. Yeah, I feel, feel similarly, uh, just kind of setting up, setting up kids for the future is, is just so important with... And it's not, I mean, I think a lot of people think about that as if you want to hand them, uh, you know, a bucket of money, but it's really more about teaching them the processes and and what you've built, whether they go into real estate or not, but just re realizing the power of it for, um, you know, kind of creating that passive income on the side if they don't want to be active and and that way they can, you know, do do whatever they want and not have to worry about, you know, kind of where the money comes from. Yeah, um, to be good, 
good stewards of money. Exactly, exactly. Uh, t- tell us something about yourself that that isn't common knowledge, special skill, a hobby, um, anything that sure. uh, lets people know you a little better. Yeah, so I've I've tried so many different hide, uh, side hustles over the years. My favorite side hustle ever was uh, flame working, which is kind of like glass blowing, but you use a, a torch, so that's why they call it flame working. And so back in my college days, I spent a lot of time developing a studio, building it out, teaching other people how to to blow glass, and then um, just making my own creations. I pretty much focused on jewelry uh, because. I just, I enjoyed it. And um, I got really good reception from the ladies that uh, like would like to wear the the jewelry. So I kind of stuck with that and I made a lot of jewelry over the years. And um, I still have a, a pretty small private collection of stuff that I've just kept that I've made that I didn't sell to anybody else. Um, so I still have all the tools. I don't have it set up at the, at the moment, but um, yeah, as my kids get bigger, they tend to gravitate towards stuff that I like. So I'm sure we'll dust it off and, and get it out and I'll be able to teach them how to, how to blow glass. It's fascinating. <laughs> you, you've got so many fascinating things here. It's just, it's just uh, amazing. Um, when people hear this, tell me, or sorry, when people hear this and they want to reach out to you, uh, what's the best way for them to reach you? Yep. So it's uh raisecapital.com. It's R A Z E capital. Like you're going to stack up your cash in a big wall and then knock it over. We'll put that in the show notes. Final question for you, Mark. And it sounds like you, you do some coaching. So what's a piece of advice you would give to someone who is trying to get started in real estate? They, they're they're looking to follow in your footsteps. Um, what would you tell them as, as they begin their journey? A lot of people recommend wholesaling. I never recommend wholesaling. I think that's it's uh, positions people for failure more, more so than it doesn't. Uh, I would personally recommend becoming a real estate agent. You know, it really worked for me. It, it taught me the, you know, I, I had a little bit of background. Obviously I had purchased a few ha- a few houses and I had gone through the process, uh, but being an agent and working for other investors and just getting to know construction a little bit better and networking and being involved in real estate hundred percent of the time has been huge for my growth and my development. So I really think being a realtor, you know, if why not? Yeah, I I think it's I think a lot of people do it. I mean, a lot of people get into real estate and decide they're going to get their uh, real estate license for one reason or another, and, and people may use it or may not. But it is really, you know, kind of all the all the skill sets you just named. It 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 is really a way to get into the business and like some sort of in an all encompassing way, and it teaches you sales and marketing and and just. You know, there's so much you can be a part of from that perspective that I, I think it is actually a great piece of advice and, and really powerful. Yeah, and you have yeah. a really good earning potential too. Something right. more that more so than you know coming out. I had uh, advanced degree in science, and I made three times as much money as a realtor. Now it didn't happen overnight. It took probably three. It took me three years to triple triple my W two income just through real estate sales, but that's not that long. And uh, then it's repeatable and you can take it up from there. You know, you can build a team out underneath you. Um, it's, it's a whole separate business entity. So it'll give you a lot of uh, business savvy just doing it. And it doesn't mean that you have to be a realtor for life, uh, but it, it is a good avenue if you really want to have a little extra capital to be able to put into real estate, you got to be able to make the capital somehow. 
And it, I mean, three years to, to triple your income is, I think most people would be pretty, pretty happy with that. Um, yeah, really cool. Well, listen, Mark, this is awesome. Uh, I really enjoyed this and, and, uh, I think, and I've learned a lot from the conversation. I, I think the listeners will too. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show and, and sharing your story. Um, I really can't wait for, for people to hear it. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me and I'll see you back on LinkedIn. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And folks listening, um, I know you're going to love this episode. Please like rate and review the show that allows us greater reach and to get uh, more fantastic guests like Mark. Have a great day. I'd like to show you why knowing your why is the start of your journey. Without a strong why, it can be so difficult to reach your maximum potential. My name is Dr. Jason Ballara, and every week I meet with real estate investors and mindset specialists that are taking action in order to build a life according to their own terms. We will break down what drives successful people and allows them to achieve at such a high level. If you are a professional wanting to break through, or simply someone that wants to hear an inspiring story, the Know Your Why podcast is made for you.